and welcome to Sobre Mesa with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Today, I have a special guest with me. Uh, his name is Giles Tremlett. His latest book called The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom and the Spanish Civil War. It came out on the 15th of October with the publisher Bloomsbury. Welcome to Sobre Mesa, Giles. Hello. Very nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Okay, so my my first question for you, Giles, is um, you you've written several books on on Spain and now and Spanish history. I think the ghosts of Spain um, is often a lifeline for many people moving to the country or becoming interested in Spanish history. Um, it's you know recommended in most bookshops around Spain as the book to read to get to know the country. And then you've also uh, written Catherine of Aragon and Isabel of Castile, um, both documenting the lives of the two famous queens. This book, it seems like a, a much larger project. Um, so uh, what is the story of how the project came about and, and, how, and how much research was involved in writing it? Well, I think I've probably been wanting to write on the international brigades for 20 years, I guess. Um, I wouldn't have dared to 20 years ago because I simply didn't know enough about the, um, about the subject. So it's always was there on my list of, you know, projects that I'd like to do. Mm. Um, I have to admit that even I was surprised when I actually sat down and started to sort of look at what else there was. And I discovered that um, even though there are literally thousands of books that talk about the International Brigades, there's actually a bibliography with, I think, 2,600 books on it. Wow. And, um, and, and I can now tell you that they aren't all there either. That <laughs> um, actually there's only been a handful of global histories of the brigades in other words some an attempt to look at them as a whole rather than just looking at say the british volunteers or the american volunteers or the french volunteers or the cypriot volunteers or the canadian volunteers they they all have their own books the chinese volunteers um but in fact there hadn't been a sort of global history in english since 1986 and a lot has happened since then in terms of uh, especially archives um, you know the really big archive on the international brigades is uh, the brigade's own archive which was moved uh, or some of it was moved to Moscow to the Comintern archive um, after the Spanish Civil War and that was only opened up um, in the late 80s and very fortunately was also uh, put online um, quite quietly I have to say only a few of us seem to seem to realize at the time uh, about uh, six years ago uh, or seven years ago which in fact is precisely when I started uh, um, researching the book so and uh, I mean that was really just a stroke of luck I was expecting to have to go and sit in um in washington where they have a copy or in moscow for months on end and uh 
and in fact was able to just sort of flit around the internet, which was rather uh, delightful, um, you know, and meant that um, um, uh, my archival search was easier, but still, you know, I went to, had to go to Warsaw, uh, Amsterdam, uh, London, obviously, New York, uh, Stanford in California, um, you know, and a few libraries and archives around here in, uh, in Spain, in Salamanca, in Madrid. Um, so it's a lot of work and obviously, um, you know, the International Brigades, which for those of you, those who don't know who they were, were the 35,000 volunteers from around the world uh, who came to Spain to defend uh, the Republic after Franco and others uh, rose against it in a, a failed, basically a failed coup in 1936, which became the Spanish Civil War and became uh, a civil war rather than just a failed coup um, uh, in great part because um, Adolf Hitler sent the Luftwaffe to transport uh, Franco's uh, Army of Africa, which was the sort of most experienced uh, fighting force in Spain, uh, over from uh, Spain's North African uh, possessions over to mainland Spain, and that really ensured that um, that uh, that the civil war would uh, continue, and that Franco's side could um, could stay stay in the game. Um, so those 35,000 people came from what today are more than 80 nations. Uh, one of the nice things about writing this book has been seeing how, how the world looked in 1936, what form it took politically. Mm. And, uh, and of course, you know, it was full of vast empires. Mm. And uh, actually, in terms of sovereign nations, um, they didn't even, you know, the you can count them in different ways, but they don't even get as far as 80 sovereign nations at the time. Mm. Of which, you know, you can say, well, uh, volunteers arrived from four fifths of that because, um, because Britain accounts for virtually half the world anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, in today's terms, when there's about, um, I can't remember what the numbers are now, 170 odd countries uh, or sovereign nations in the world, well, more the, the brigaders came from more of 80 of them. And of course, they came speaking all their own languages. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that makes, you know, investigating them terribly difficult because they wrote their reports in 20 odd languages. Um, and uh, and obviously all their memoirs as well. Um, so I like to joke that I had to brush up on my Bulgarian, <laughs> which of course is is inexistent. What well, what I had to do was find a a network of of willing uh, and friendly uh, translators uh, to whom I am vastly indebted, uh, and um, and quite literally I owe them debts in in. Um, uh, in work or whatever, um, mm. which I'm sure some of them will want to cash in on one day. But um, but anyway, so it, uh, it's a vast project in that sense, mm. um, which is why, um, um, you know, I started it seven years ago, but also wrote um, the Isabel biography at the same time uh, on the basis that there was always going to be less to research there. 
mm. um, uh, simply because there's less material, you know, in the 15th um, mm. century. So, um, so yes, so it's been a huge project. Um, you know, I could have gone on for another 10 years, frankly. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, um, you have to stop at some stage and, mm. you know, frame it and stick it on the wall. And, um, and so here it is. Great. And, and how was it interacting with, um, or did, or did you have much interaction with, uh, cause there's vast networks, um, around the international brigades out, mainly outside of Spain, um, these different associations that are sort of commemorating the memory of the International Brigades and, you know, putting up um, memorials and things like that. They, and they're obviously very welcoming of the book um, from what I've seen online. Uh, how, how, was it, how was it like documenting and researching this very, to many people, very personal history Yes, well, I'm acutely aware of the sort of the, the sensitivities that surround the subject. So we mm. have this great network of uh, sort of brigader associations from mm. the from Alba, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archive mm. uh, in uh, in the United States, the International Brigades Memorial Trust in 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 Britain, mm. uh, organisations in France, um, Italy, Germany, Austria, uh, in Spain. There's a very important um, uh, brigaders association as well, mm. and uh, and they've you know it's often said that I think more more is said about science. You know that the things are built on the shoulders of. Of, of giants and often you know historians you know we we we, we thank you know the, the other historians who have come before us mm. but this has all also been a lot of the work here is actually done by on a much sort of um uh, smaller level by local history groups mm. and by these and by these brigaders associations who've done mm. a lot of the investigation into the archives and published a lot of stuff and collected a lot of stuff and they've been a very valuable uh, valuable source so i'm also actually hugely in debt to them and to all the and and to all the work that um that they've done in fact um right now i'm writing a guardian long read that looks at sort of what the place of the international brigades is in historical memory mm. and how they've been viewed over the years and how they're viewed in different places to some people they're heroes to other people they're villains you know mm. in Spain we have a historical memory law mm -hmm. where Franco's uh, monuments and the street names that his generals are being removed mm -hmm. well in Poland uh, the names of the brigaders are being removed um, wow. from from streets the name of the Dambrowski uh, battalion is on the list of uh, decommunization uh, of uh, of Polish streets, uh, which has been very controversial, and in fact um, has been over some decisions to take away their name, uh, which was a very popular street name in Poland, uh, have been reversed by the courts. Mm. But, um, you know, in this sort of long afterlife of the brigades, it's very varied. Um, but in Eastern Europe, uh, certainly in the sort of historical memory sense, historical memory being, uh, to my understanding, not really 
history in its purest sense, if mm. such a thing exists, mm. um, but really a sort of conjunction of um, of, of of facts, uh, sort of coloured by subsequent history, and then coloured too by 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 politics and 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 debate, mm. and so you get these very different outcomes. You know, the people who are heroes in Spain are villains in Poland and mm. and vice versa. Um, so, you know, history is not clean and it's not neat. And certainly when war is involved, it's, you know, it, that makes it even more difficult. But the, the thing is with, with war is that it's essentially uh, a binary thing. You very rarely have three sides to war. It's one or the other. Mm. And you end up sort of being obliged to choose, you know, which side do you support? And no side is generally perfect. And you end up getting into bed with people you may not like. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, but that's just the way it is. Mm. Um, and so the brigades have to be looked at also in, in, in that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so all that is fascinating. Plus, you know, you can then throw in all the, history of the 1930s in, you know, in two dozen European countries and the United States, mm. they've all got their own stories. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and many of those stories, you know, meet or collide or cross uh, in the international brigades. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's fascinating, but very complex. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I've managed to simplify it for the readers by basically uh, telling stories about about brigaders and the brigades uh, in a sort of consecutive narrative fashion uh, and the idea is that the story should carry people through the history and along the way um, you know people will learn uh, the history of civil war spain they'll also learn um, a lot about the history of left-wing movements in europe in the 1930s mm -hmm. and also learn about the, sort of the early stage of appeasement which is basically what uh, the British and French and Americans are pursuing mm. uh, in Spain when they're pursuing a policy of non-intervention, which the brigaders break with and rebel against because mm -hmm. they come to to fight. And also the story of anti-fascism, mm -hmm. um, all of which feeds into into this, and then the beginning of the of World War Two, because in many senses that's what. Uh, the Spanish Civil War is. Mm. So all that uh, meets in Spain and, uh, you know, it's an incredibly politically and emotionally uh, charged and intense moment. And that intensity of experience is also something that you can see in the brigaders themselves, mm. uh, you know, those who survive and um, one in five uh, actually die in Spain, but those who survive, for many of them, it's the I don't want to call it the highlight of the life of, of their lives, but it's certainly the, the major formative experience. It's something they won't forget. Yeah. Uh, I was on the radio interview yesterday with um, with Robert Elms uh, and BBC London, mm -hmm. and the granddaughter of one of a couple of brigaders um, came on, and we were talking about that, and she was saying, "Yes, you know how much it was obvious that that experience had." shaped in this case her grandmother who survived and not her grandfather who died um and so you know it was a very um key thing to them personally and that also runs uh, through the book 
Mm. Uh, it sounds, yeah, like you've completely had to cover a lot of ground. Uh, is there any particular part of the book that was uh, surprising to you? Or is there like a favorite part of the book or a favorite story or tale from the, from the book that um, really stayed with you? Well, I think possibly three different things in answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, um, we take them consecutively. Um, in the early part of the book, before the brigade, the brigades are actually formed in October uh, 1936. So the Civil War started in July. There have been several months of war before that. And actually, uh, Spain is already full of foreign volunteers. Um, um, and to me, the interesting thing there is that uh, there's an idea that the international brigades were uh, basically uh, organized from Moscow, that they were part of Stalin's uh, foreign policy. That's certainly what the Polish Institute of Memory said to me in, a, in an email just the other day mm. and um, and that therefore they're just sort of a bunch of, of Stalinists organized by Comintern, etc, uh, etc. Et but in fact, what you see from all the earlier uh, arrivals is that there's also a popular demand mm. for something uh, to be set up. Mm. And so uh, amongst the British, perhaps the best known case is uh, John Cornford, the poet, who gathers this sort of atypical band of, uh, of writers and intellectuals and artists, just half a dozen of them who come to Spain not even knowing that the international brigades exist and, uh, and join it once they get here because it's just been, it's, it's just been formed. Mm. And, um, and there, there, there are sort of romantic idea of what the brigades were like, but there was all these sort of um, uh, great intellectuals. In fact, um, it was 95% uh, um, working class. It doesn't mean there weren't great intellectuals there as well, but they weren't these sort of Cambridge graduates that, um, uh, that the Cornford story tells us about. And Cornford, of course, very romantically and tragically uh, dies in Lopera, but before that, they've defended the university city in Madrid, which is really where the Francoist advance is stopped. And they're in the philosophy faculty manning a machine gun, and they set up their barricades there. Uh, and, um, um, and the philosophy faculty, uh, it's the Complutense uh, University, is actually new. Nobody's ever used it before in 1936, but they've just brought in all the, all the books. So they build barricades um, out of these thick volumes of early 19th century German philosophy <laughs> and Indian metaphysics and things like that on the basis that they're so dense that the bullets won't get beyond page uh, 350. Um, which is uh, actually what happens. You know? wow. they believe, as a result, they believe the stories of you know soldiers carrying being saved by Bibles in their in their in their breast pockets. Mm. And another character who turns up at that stage is uh, Ismond Romilly, who is Churchill's uh, nephew, uh -huh. who cycles across France, you know, fueled with cognac and and black coffee, loses his passport 
loses everything, um, uh, ends up on a boat from Marseille, where um, um, you know different nationalities are given two-hour shifts, and already in October 1936, you can see just from the list, you know, the French do two hours, and the Germans, and the Italians, then the Russian speakers, then the Flems, uh, then the Belgians. Um, uh, and then the Yugoslavs, and so already you've got that sort of um, Tower of Babel uh, effect going on. So I like those stories because they're about people who, they're about this sort of genuine popular desire mm. uh, to come and fight before Comintern basically takes over the organisation, which it does, and later on 50% of, um, of the volunteers are... Um, are communists. Mm -hmm. But the other fascinating thing is that um, between 10 and 20% of the brigaders are Jews. Mm -hmm. And so they're heavily overrepresented in proportional terms in, in virtually all the sort of national contingents, whether they're British or Americans mm -hmm. or Yugoslavs or the whole sort of crumbling remains of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's very fascinating because there's a new narrative there mm. about Jewish resistance to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, certainly, if you go back to uh, Hannah Arendt and the and the Eichmann trial and a sort of debate there was um, uh, back in the 60s and 70s about mm. a sort of supposed Jewish passivity towards the upcoming Holocaust, mm. well, you know, uh, the brigades have proved that that is false, you know, mm. because there is this massive contingent um, uh, of Jews who are very consciously fighting fascism. They're not just there to help the Republic. They're also, and this is true of most of the brigades, they're very aware that they're actually fighting to stop the spread of, of fascism across, mm. across Europe. Mm. Um, uh, and that's very obvious because, as I said, we just had um, Hitler helping to bring um, the army of Africa over to bring um, Franco's forces over from uh, from North Africa um, with his massive airlift. And then you've got 70,000 Italian soldiers turn up, two thirds of Franco's air forces, you know, squadrons of Luftwaffe and Italian air force planes and they're immensely important to the to the final victory so the idea so to them it's very clear that this is a sort of anti-fascist war mm. um and to many of them who are already political exiles or economic exiles especially the germans and the italians mm. um but also uh, the poles and the hungarians and uh, and the czechs um it's almost a sort of spain is almost a lifeline you know it's a chance to do something rather than mm. being a sort of miserable exile who can't, who can't sort of respond to the situation, can't take any action. Um, and there's a, an Italian, I think, who says maybe we needed, you know, Spain more than, or the Republic, and more than the Republic uh, needed us. But anyway, getting back to the to the Jews, I found uh, actually in the archive in Amsterdam. Uh, the social international social history archive i think it's called um this you know, letter from um uh, uh, a belgian polish a jew who was only 23 years old piet ackerman 
mm. um, who's a volunteer with his brother Emil, and he's writing to his mother. His mother is Bluma Ackerman, and she's actually moved to uh, Britain because she's remarried. And he's sort of apologizing to her because she's a very conservative, uh, traditional um, uh, Jewish woman. And he's sort of apologizing for the fact that, you know, he's followed this sort of radical um, left wing Marxist uh, 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 view of the world and that this has led him to, to, to have to go to Spain. He says he really just has to go. And um, but he also says, listen, you know, um, you know, I, but he's not a Zionist in any way, but he says, listen. And in fact, he's even changed his name from Israel to to Piet to be more to, to be more Flemish. Mm. Um, but he says he argues, listen, you know, um, the Jewish uh, recent Jewish history and working class history is, you know, overlaps, especially in the areas where. Um, where you can see where there have been pogroms, which are, you know, he says they're basically a way of, a way of, you know, laying the blame um, uh, and diverting attention towards the Jews while, um, you know, while uh, the working class is um, downtrodden and um, and screwed, if you'll pardon the um, the uh, the expression. Mm -hmm. So, and it's a very, it's a very loving and warm letter to his mother, you know, he ends up saying, you know, mum, please don't cry, you know, we're very similar, actually, you know, we have, we share this kind of Jewish stubbornness with our ideas, you and me, we don't agree about much anymore, but, you know, but, you know, I love you very much, and, you know, I want you to know that, you know, this is an ethical, moral stance, which, you know, um, comes from our own tradition, and, um, you know, so, you know, please don't cry about this, you know. And uh, we don't know her response. What we do know is both he and Emil uh, are killed in the first few months of the war. The sort of the third sort of um, the most surprising thing to me actually was to look at the, the afterlife of brigades, the brigaders, what happened to them afterwards. Mm. Think about it, you know, they were, they defined themselves primarily as anti-fascists. Mm -hmm. So five months after the Spanish war finishes, Hitler invades Poland, World War II starts, suddenly everybody agrees with them that uh, fascism has to be fought with arms. Mm. And, uh, and obviously they all end up uh, fighting in World War II. And then you start to see the stories and there's, you know, several hundred of them are in the French resistance. They lead all the uh, partisan armies in Yugoslavia, uh, several of the partisan armies in Italy. Um, uh, Bernard Knox, who is this volunteer who turns up with, uh, with Cornford and later um, um, joins actually the American OSS, which is sort of pre-CIA. But anyway, is, is there sort of guerrilla behind the lines operation run by a general known as Wild Bill Donovan? Wow. Um, and he ends up sort of being parachuted in behind the lines, both in France and Italy. And in Italy, his job is to co coordinate with the partisans and he starts sort of making linguistic mistakes, you know, throwing in Spanish words instead of Italian. And eventually the partisan commander comes up to him and sort of, you know, slaps him on the shoulder and goes, ha! Huh. Madrid, hey? And, um, and he goes, yeah. And they go, well, you know, I was in the Garibaldi battalion and, you know, and so they fought side by side. And he said, you know, after that, 
relationships with the partisans were just uh, were just fine. Mm. Um, uh, you can look at the French resistance there; it's remarkable. Actually, I mean, I didn't know um, that the French resistance had a rule for a very long time uh, through to 1942 that it actually wasn't going to carry out um, uh, um, assassinations of German. Uh, uh, soldiers in occupied France. That was, you know, de Gaulle's orders. Um, but um, uh, some of the ex-brigaders disagreed. And in fact, the first assassination of a German officer in Paris is uh, by Pierre Georges, who's also known, becomes known as Colonel Fabien, uh, who's only 22 at that stage, but he's wow. a brigade veteran. And, and that sort of kickstarts the, the, the or, or let's say, provokes a sort of step change in the, in the, in the resistance. And again, the second um, killing, which is uh, of the military governor in Nantes, that's also dubbed by a brigader. Then you go to Italy, uh, when Mussolini and uh, his uh, lover, uh, Claretta, I can't remember her surname, Petacci, I think, is uh, uh, killed. Well, you know, one of the three partisans who who do that. One of them's an ex-brigader as well. Mm. Um, so you know, the stories in World War Two are, are quite amazing. And Colonel Fabian, for example, Colonel Fabian actually has a metro station named after him now in uh, in Paris. Mm. Um, uh, there's another um, resistance commander, Roll Tongui. I say that right, uh, who's actually the guy who orders the French forces of the interior in Paris to rise up um, the week before, um, you know, Paris is is liberated and who's there and also signs the, the, the German rendition of, of Paris. So they're sort of key figures and it makes sense that they should be too. They're experienced fighters and, um, and so they're key figures all over all over Europe, even the Germans are in Stalingrad, you know, defending it against their own German people. Mm. Um, um, so that's remarkable. So all that is pretty remarkable. But then also, then there's a sort of logical second stage to that, which is behind the Iron Curtain. It's, um, as they set up administrations, they turn to the brigaders en masse because these are people are considered trustworthy by them mm. um, and especially in East Germany um, uh, but basically all over um, Soviet-dominated uh, Europe um, they take key roles um, they're prime ministers or the equivalent of prime minister in East Germany to begin with, Heinrich Rau, um, uh, in, uh, in Hungary, Ferenc Munich, Ferenc Munich uh, in Albania, um, Mehmet Shehu, who's prime minister for 25 years. And then there's this massively long list of ministers and generals and ambassadors and mm. police chiefs. And, and in fact, there's the rub with that last one because police chiefs includes William uh, Wilhelm Zeisser, who founds the Stasi in East Germany, uh, Eric uh, Mierkler, uh, who actually runs the Stasi for 32 years. He's still in charge of the Stasi when the wall comes down. He's 82 by that stage. So there's a sort of counter narrative as well, if you want, of, you know, um, if people want to look at their history in terms of goodies and baddies, which is by no means the only way to look at history. Mm. But, you know, 
in some in some stages you can clearly see that the brigaders are fighting on the right side and in some stages a lot of people will go well actually um i'm not sure they're on the right side anymore or in this particular circumstance mm. so in some circumstances you can see uh, clearly if you're you know if you're making value judgments moral judgments on on the past that you know that they're clearly on the right side they're fighting fascism they're fighting um, the nazis um but on the other on on other moments some of them by no means all of them and not the majority of them i'm not saying that by any means mm. but a sort of hard core of them are are basically maintaining the um the regimes um behind the iron curtain and often in charge of the security apparatus uh, which means you know repressing your own your own people the stasi was infamous with you know as the as the world's uh, you know most advanced um, surveillance state ever i think is how it was how it was how it was seen so it's very interesting to see the different paths that people take mm. uh, in britain you get this fascinating situation in the 1970s where you have jack jones head of the transport and general workers union a very powerful uh, union man um, there's a there's a poll from the 1970s where people an opinion poll where people say no this this is actually the most powerful person in britain wow. and at the same time you have alfred sherman who's another brigade veteran who has become uh, margaret thatcher's free markets guru really so, <laughs> yes. so, and who never and, and who never repents he never he never might you know he never says oh i shouldn't have gone to spain he says, no 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 that was absolutely right but mm -hmm. i was i was also absolutely right to become a, a free markets guru he becomes sir alfred sherman you know and wow. um, so he's one of the ideologues of of of, of thatcherism wow. so you know all this stuff happens um and uh and it's sort of continual that uh, franco himself is continually talking about the brigade in his speeches for years to come when he mm. inaugurates the Valle de los Caídos when you know they're sort of meant to be examples of this sort of Marxist horde that mm. uh, appeared in Spain and Ronald Reagan even accuses them of having fought on the wrong side which is um, wow. extraordinary and then um, and then you get the uh, Senator John McCain uh, just the year before he died writing this sort of beautiful obituary to one of the last american brigaders to die saying, so, you know I, I always admired them mm -hmm. of course he had read uh, hemingway's um for whom the bell toll which is about an american brigader mm. in spain um and so there's also there's also this literary afterlife as well mm. um in germany uh, peter Vice's uh, The Aesthetics of Resistance is an incredibly important book, and that's also about a, about a brigada. Um, we've got George Orwell's uh, Homage to Catalonia, which in a way is about that, but looking from the opposite side and you know, disliking what he, what he saw. Ironically, mm. Orwell was just about to join the International Brigade when mm. he got caught up yeah. in the event in Homage in Catalonia. Mm. Um, so, you know, it goes on and on and on. The brigaders themselves are now all dead. I think there's two of them are left alive. Oh, really? One of the last ones, um, Virgilio Fernández del Real, stayed with me, who's um, from Mexico, um, 
birthday with me about 18 months ago, but died in November just before oh. his 101st birthday. Wow. Um, uh, so, you know, there are two um, brothers in the south of France mm. who were actually part of the, um, the Spaniards who joined the brigades. And that's an important thing that really people don't know is that by the end, the brigades were more than half Spanish. Wow. The volunteers had run out or they'd been killed or were wounded and they you know and the brigades were filled up with um with spaniards mm. and uh in 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 the last sort of 15 20 years the the civil war but also you know francoist spain that came after it has become uh it's, it's sort of been talked about and debated in in spanish in in the spanish nation and between people um historically quite a thing that you didn't talk about uh, but now it's sort of coming up more your book comes out in spanish with uh debate in november is that right that's right yeah. yeah how do you think it's going to be received and and what's your general impression about the state of this period of time and 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 the international brigades as well like how they are received in spanish society today well i think um you know i wrote a book um, ghosts of spain um about 13 years ago now mm. and at that stage you could see that you know historical memory was uh, a serious problem in the sense that it hadn't been approached mm. Nowadays, you look at it and you go, oh, oh, what a ghastly sort of bun fight. Mm. But actually, in a way, I think the fact that you can have that ghastly bun fight and, you know, uh, and it's an argument, not a not around the fisticuffs uh, is actually quite positive. Mm. And, uh, and that's part of what, you know, any historical memory uh, uh, sort of process is about. It's about debate. It's about, you know slinging history at each other mm. um, and it's important that that sort of process should happen mm. before the whole thing can can settle mm. um, I have to say I'm sort of you know I don't really uh, personally agree too much with the removal of monuments I mean we just seen Largo Caballero removed yeah. in, in, in Madrid I'm in favor of explaining monuments mm. Um, and that therefore, you know, the, the, what's actually important is that, you know, we should change the way we explain them. Mm. And um, uh, because otherwise you're sort of um, rubbing history out. Mm. And it's actually sometimes important to be reminded uh, in the way those splendid things, the stumbling blocks in mm. Germany and Holland and other places. I don't know whether you come across those no. stumbling blocks are put up outside the houses where Jewish families lived. Um, and they're normally put up by the residents of those houses who want to remember mm. or that, you know, that this was a place where people were taken, you know, from which people were taken and transported off to Auschwitz or sent to the gas chambers. Mm. And it's literally a stumbling block. It's a, you know, it's, it's something there in the ground that you're sort of meant to half trip over to constantly remind yourself about, about what happened. Mm. Um, so I'm very much actually in favour of a sort of a, 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 loud, a loud and cantankerous debate because I actually think it's, you know, it's important. It's much better than silence, which is what mm. we 
which is what we had before. How will this be taken? Well, unfortunately, because um, because some people are sort of, you know, only in the trenches and not sort of um, can only see things um, um, in a sort of visceral fashion. Mm. Well, you know, the fact that I put in that the full title of the book is The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom and the Spanish Civil War. Mm. Well, some on the right will obviously go, well, uh, no, they weren't defending freedom. They're a bunch of Stalinist communists. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then others will say, no, fascism, there wasn't any fascism here. Fascism was, you know, an Italian or, 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 or German or, or whatever. Mm. Um, uh, in fact, I think, you know, um, everybody can read this book and everybody can get something out of it and everybody can learn. Mm. And um, and and it's certainly not an attempt to to whitewash the brigade's history, but it's not an attempt to diminish it in any way either. Mm. Um, um, so you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I think should make anybody uh, think. And um, you know, I'm 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 not terribly interested in people who are going to start arguing with me simply on the basis of the title of a book rather than actually what might be inside it. Mm. Um, but yes, it's guaranteed to provoke um, <laughs> reactions of different kinds. Mm. And uh, my last question was regarding um, Pablo Iglesias's uh, announcement regarding, um, was it the descendants of international brigaders or international brigaders themselves getting Spanish citizenship uh, as part of the democratic memory law. I'm not sure if it's been fully put into the law or if it's going to be a Podemos amendment. Um, I don't know. Honestly, there seems to be a lot of confusion about that. Right. Um, you know, the Moncloa itself, you know, uh, Pablo Iglesias put out a, a, a tweet and then, and then the Moncloa sort of said, well, actually, no, that's not, that's not true. Mm. And um, we're still sort of slightly confused Right. Uh, about what it what it means, mm. I suspect it may mean that um, that the international brigaders who previously were given um, there are sort of two ways to get Spanish nationality. Mm. One is basically through, in the easier sense, through a right, mm. and the other is through a gift mm. of the government. And I think what what the law might say, and I'm and I'm just double guessing here, is is that they've been that the brigaders themselves have been shifted from the gift column to the rights column right and even though they're all dead if though if they had rights then some of their descendants will have rights as well right. that's the only explanation i can find mm. Mm. um but until we see actual written copies of the law i don't think um i don't think we can be sure no no well thank you very much for joining me uh, it's That's been a very insightful, insightful interview. Um, thank you very much. That's all right. It's a, it's a pleasure. That was Giles Tramnett there. Thanks, Giles, for coming on the Sorbonne podcast. His book, The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom and the Spanish Civil War is out now in all bookshops and online. You've been listening to the Sorbonne Mesa podcast. On Monday, we'll be back with another current affairs issue. This time it is regarding healthcare professionals from Spain, ones that live here and ones that live outside. 
This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Google and various other platforms and it's also available on the website. I hope you have a nice weekend. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.